0: We're studying Romans 7 and we're doing uh, verses 15 to 17. We're looking at this passage tonight. Romans 7 and verses uh, 15 to 17. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Well, there have been occasions in your life as a professing Christian when you said, What am I doing here? How am I behaving like this? Why do I feel so broken and sad? I don't know what I'm doing. There have been times when you said to yourself, here am I, I've made resolutions to be more patient and more loving and more gentle and prayerful. I want to live like that. But I stay just the same. You think like that, and then you think, yeah, but the Bible tells me about the power of remaining sin. Another law in my members, it's called, or it's called the flesh. And so you say to yourself, that's what's pulling me down, I know. It's so subtle and insidious and relentless. Do you say, the Christian life is the best life. It's the happiest way of life. It's it's a good life. Obeying the law of God. and the people I most admire and like to be with are people who love the law of God and do the will of Jesus Christ. And I I want to live like that day by day. But oh, I wish I were more consistent in how I behaved. You, you think like that? This is your chapter. The first thing I want to talk to you about is how Paul is describing his uh, Christian experience as the archetypal Christian and how he then applies it to to all of us. He will say, yeah, what you've said now is just my experience exactly. And you're in good company because you're standing alongside the Apostle Paul. He's linking his arm around yours and he's nodding you ahead his head, and you are nodding your head in agreement with what he says. He'd known extraordinary blessings, hadn't he? More than any other Christian has ever known. He'd seen the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He'd spent years, two, three years, in contemplation and solitude in Arabia. And there he had had uh, deep encounters with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he'd given him truths to pass on to the churches. um, I received from the Lord what I also delivered unto you that the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed and so on the words I used at the Lord's Supper he received it from Jesus in Arabia he'd been caught up to the third heaven and he'd seen sights and he'd heard words He, he wouldn't tell anyone what he'd heard they were too sacred and most wonderful of all he'd been kept daily by God To live a consistent life, a life of integrity and and kindness and patience and righteousness. Nobody could accuse him of theft or adultery or greed or sloth. He wasn't a burden to any congregation. He'd been mightily used by God as an evangelist and as a, a church planter and a pastor. He'd been God's spokesman speaking to philosophers speaking to kings and soon he was to speak to Nero because he wanted to establish for the whole of the Christian church their right to exist and their meet together and put up their buildings and to evangelize and many people had come to faith through listening to him his letters were wholly inspired by the Holy Spirit and 2000 years later They're still being read tonight all over the world. They've lost none of their relevance or their power to elevate and illuminate and energize us in our lives. And Paul is describing the normal Christian experience here in this chapter. Now, if he had done it in terms of the fight, the good soldier then battling in the holy war... The Christian conflict, there'd be no questions in our minds about, yes, how helpful that chapter is. But Paul in Romans 7 describes his experience in terms of defeat. That's what he's so honest about. He tells us not only that he wants to do good, but he tells us he doesn't do the good he wants to do. Now, Romans 7 is not the whole story of the Christian life, but it is a crucial part of Christian experience, for every follower of Jesus Christ. Some people are embarrassed by this chapter. They have suggested that it's the sort of defeated, carnal Christian that is described for us in Romans 7, and that we are called then to move on and move our lives out of Romans 7 into Romans chapter 8. Out of the wilderness, it's called, and into the promised land. Now, I want you all to know and understand that I don't believe that that is correct. I don't see anything that suggests to me that we are to live in Romans 8 and not in Romans 7. Paul is presenting a unified form here in these three chapters. Uh, Romans 6, we live in that, definitive sanctification. Romans 7... The battle, the defeat, the licking our wounds, and now going on to serve God with them in that context. And in Romans 8, then, and the assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God. I believe that the path of blessing, God's blessing for your life, goes through Romans 7. That the experience that Paul is talking about here is a necessary part of the walk The pilgrimage that we are all engaged in. The way, as it's called five times or so in the New Testament. The way is the way of Romans 7, as well as 6 and as well as 8. And that God put this chapter in the Bible for your blessing. Put them in the Bible because they reflect one essential part of Christian experience. Things that we rarely talk about need to, and that our prayer meetings should recognize that in our praying, that there should be, as well as intercession, there should be then confession and acknowledgement that the good that we would do, we, we haven't done. So here's the context then. In the previous paragraph, uh, verses 7 to 13, he has shown us that as an unbeliever, he discovered he couldn't keep the law. Love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. Impossible. Love my neighbor as I love myself. You must be joking. Now, in our text and in this paragraph, Paul shows us that uh, even as a Christian believer, joined to Jesus Christ, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, he still can't keep the law of God blamelessly. He discovered it when he was pre-Damascus Road, as a proud Pharisee. He learned that lesson then, and now he's learning it again as a Christian. He tells us that, oh, he appreciates the goodness of the law, verse 16, in a way that he didn't used to, as an unbeliever. In fact, he delights in the law of God, as the Old Testament saints delighted in it. Oh, how love I thy law, it's my meditation all the day. Psalm 119 tells us. But he has to acknowledge that there are times when he is sold as a slave to sin, verse 14, and that this sin is alive and well, living in me, verse 17. And consequently then, he fails wholeheartedly to love God, wholeheartedly to love his neighbor as himself. He fails to love his enemy, and to overcome their evil with his good. The things that were his undoing before the Damascus road, they still are his Achilles' heel. So what we have here then in these verses that I've read in your hearing is um, an honest and a humble acknowledgement of the irremediable evil of our flesh. while we're in the body, even after the new birth. And I'm saying that the first step as we progress in in sanctification, in holiness, in Christ-likeness, the first step is to acknowledge that before God. Some of you are not living the holy lives that you should be living for the simple reason is that you've got too big a view of yourself you've had blessings in the Christian life and you think that that's put you on a plateau and it's made you immune from the sort of conflict that Paul is talking about in this passage before us you've never come to the position where you were poor in spirit and that's the gateway to the life of blessedness the Sermon on the Mount, that's where it begins. When he was set, his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's his first words. Theirs there's alone is the kingdom of God. And then the next is, blessed are they that mourn. So here are people who are not unfamiliar with grief over how they are failing to live as they should live. Oh, miserable creature that I am, who will deliver me? In other words, one indispensable way of coming to know the power of the Holy Spirit, the energizing the enabling of the Holy Spirit in your life is by reaching an end of yourself and seeing how quickly your own resources and wits and spiritual capabilities come to an end. And you go to God and you say, there's no hope in me, Lord. I'm not going to do your will As I should, I'm not going to be useful in your service. Lord, you must save me. You alone must save me. You'll never be cast wholly upon the Holy Spirit until you've reached the end of your tether. You have to go down to go up, they say. And this is what Paul is saying here. And he's teaching us through his own self-consciousness. He's telling us, this is my experience and I'm telling you about my experience because it's your experience too, if the same Spirit of God is in you that is in me. This is my foundation, this is my bedrock. I know that in me that is in my flesh there dwells no good thing. So, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So the opening verses of this paragraph proclaim to us that We are, whether believers or unbelievers, we who are regenerate or unregenerate, all of us here, we're either in the one category or the other. We're all confronted with sin within us. It lords over the unbeliever, and it tells the unbeliever, don't think about religion, don't send your children to go and attend the beach missions activities and listen to the people and do the Bible stories and, and they don't. They obey the lordship of sin over them and they steer their children and take them to the other part of the beach. It doesn't lord it, sin doesn't lord it over the believer but it's active in it and nudges us and sticks its knife in and hurts us We may have been believers for 50 years, indwelt by the Godhead. We may be prayed over by someone in the midst of the throne of God. We may know Scripture. We can recite the Ten Commandments. We struggle to obey them because of the power of remaining sin, the flesh, the other law that's in our members. And that's the reason for the sad history of the Jews in the Old Testament. Isn't it sad? Isn't it absolutely pathetic? They've hardly been delivered from slavery in Egypt a a week. And they start to grumble. And they start to remember the fish and the cucumbers and the onions of Egypt. And soon they are taking their earrings out and the rings off their fingers and they're making a calf out of gold and... uh, Moses' brother is turning to the people and says, this is your God, O Israel. It's a heartbreaking story. What wretched leaders they had. They had the law of God. They had the tablets of stone. They were kept in the Holy of Holies, in the, in the tabernacle. They were there in the Ark of the Covenant. And the people learned them by heart. They're not difficult. 144 words and you've got them. You've memorized them. And they had prophets that taught them and went round the villages and preached to them. There were schools of prophets that itinerated and declared the word of God to the people. And they had the way of forgiveness. There in the tabernacle and then in the temple, they had all the means of grace under the old covenant to show that there was mercy for those who put their hand on the head of the lamb and confess their sin, and they, they could be forgiven and pardoned. But the law of God was weak because of remaining sin. The law by itself, it couldn't help them any more than it helped the Babylonians, and helped the Assyrians, and the Egyptians, and the Moabites, and the Amorites. Instead of the pagans looking at Israel and saying, My, that's paradise. We want to live like them. And they changing their ways, they looked at Egypt and Babylon and Moab and Assyria. And they started to live like them and they started to worship their gods. The law could tell them what was right and what was wrong. But it couldn't motivate them to do what was right. It couldn't energize them. It couldn't provide for them a, a costly life of submission and dedication. So that they said, for us to live is Jehovah. That's what we want to do. So that's the background of our text. And so let me go on and say now that uh, one problem we have is with ourselves. It's so easy, isn't it, to point at ISIS or point at carnality in government and uh, appointed false religions and to grumble about uh, atheism in the land. But the problem is simply not the attacks of the world and the devices of Satan from the outside. The problem is we have sin on the inside. We brought sin with us tonight and we'll take it with us all on our earthly pilgrimage, on our deathbed, there be this struggle, this longing for peace and trust, and oh, that the Savior's arms may be wrapped around us, and then this indwelling sin troubling us, pulling us down. The problem is not simply temptation out there, but the temptation is in here, there's the American cartoon strip uh, Pogo you're looking blank and one famous uh, cartoon is the hero comes and he says we have met the enemy and he is us and that's what Paul is saying we've met the enemy the enemy is us the enemy is not just out there somewhere the indifference and the hostility of the world the enemies on the inside, is infiltrated into our very beings. Which is why when people write to me from around the world and say how they've enjoyed hearing, reading sermons, then there's something that, oh, just wells up within me and I want to say, hey, if you really knew what I was like, you wouldn't be clapping. You wouldn't be cheering. God has veiled what I'm really like from you. So here is this man then, an extraordinary man. One of the great intellects that the human race has uh, ever known. One of the greatest minds, such vast understanding. And yet, he is saying here, in the passage of scripture that I read to you, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. Verse 15. You see, he's moving on now. He's talked in general terms so far. He has said, I am carnal or uh, unrighteous. I'm sold under sin, he has said so far. And you might think, well, that's rhetoric. That's the uh, hyperbole of a preacher. But now he spells out what being a slave to sin at times can mean for him. What I hate doing, I actually do. That's what he says. I've said, I'll never do that again. I'll never do it again, never. And I do it again and I do it again, and again, he says. And he isn't speaking about this problem defiantly. He isn't saying, well, this is what I am. Take me, take me just as I am. Take me or leave me. He has a a deep regret about the discrepancy between what he'd like to be. He has a, a vision of a Christian. He has seen other people, and oh, he admires them so much. and Oh, he wants to be like them, strong and, and uh, happy and uh, holy and loving and patient. And he finds, oh, I, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. I'm a dilemma to myself. He's saying, why am I behaving in this way? Why do I say those proud words? Why am I so superior? Why uh, do I hurt people? And think that thought, and imagine that foulness. And if the highest ambition's a life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's my ambition. If that famous hymn of uh, Francis Ridley Havergal had been. Uh, written in the first century and not in the 19th century, Paul would have sung it from his heart. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. He'd have, he'd have sung it, tears running down his cheeks, a uh, lump in his throat as he came to the different parts of his life that he wanted to give to the Lord. Take my hands and take my feet and take my intellect, take my will. It'll be always thine. Take my life, and I will be ever only all for thee. He'd sing it, he'd sing it as a sort of closing hymn, and he'd go home and get into the chariot with his family, and he'd fall morally. Then he'd say, "Don't do that." He'd snap at one of the children. And it's hurt pride. What did you say? What did you say? he wanted his own way there was tension in the conversations with people he loved the most and people who loved him the most and he'd sung just half an hour earlier about take my lips take my voice and let me sing ever only to my king he failed 30 minutes later he'd fallen at the first hurdle He says in verse 15 then, I don't understand what I do. It's an amazing confession because what an understanding he has of grace and the person and work of Christ and the nature of God and the future and the future of the land and the anatomy of of the human heart. He knows all these things. He says, I don't understand what I do. And we know that, don't we? You hear children saying it all the time. They're mean to the dog. They break a plate. they hit their brother. they pull their sister's hair. Why did you do that? I don't know. What Paul is saying here is true for all of us. There are times in our lives when we do something bad. And when we are asked why we did it, I don't know. I don't know. Why did you go to that place? Why did you listen to that salesman who sold you that junk? Why did you make that deal? Why did you break that promise? And the only answer we can come up with is I don't know. I really don't know why you did it. It was so so foolish. Oh so regrets, I've lived in the pain of it, something just moved me and greed and anger and lust well you're in good company because this is what the Apostle Paul is telling us in Romans 7 is part of Christian experience you mustn't rubbish yourself and say I'm not a Christian many times I do things he says and afterwards I don't understand why I did them All right, this is not some psychological dualism. This is not some evangelical schizophrenia. All right, you with me? This is not some incredible irrationality. Don't abuse this passage. I mean by that, don't think... Well, if the Apostle Paul couldn't live the Christian life, what hope is for me Joe Bloggs in in a little town in Wales in 2015 to live the Christian life? Loving your enemies, overcoming evil with good, turning the other cheek. You know, you can make it hopelessly idealistic and very impractical. I can't believe that God who knows this world and knows our hearts and... uh, knows our condition and knows the challenges that we face it has made his will for us day by day hopelessly unattainably impractical impossible to keep I don't believe that Paul is saying that he simply couldn't help doing what he did like you know the fallen evangelist the tele-evangelist who has a great moral fall and has taken a million dollars and hidden them away or met a woman or whatever he does and then he excuses himself by saying the devil made me do it come on now pull the other leg you chose to do what you did no action of ours can be done without the consent of your will there's no way I can get outside my body and my mind and my affections and the great force of sin come crashing into my life and I can look detached or outside of my life and say, well, it simply came into my life and swept me away and there I was, I was looking at myself doing these things. It's not like that, it's never like that. When I, uh, I pray at night, I can't uh, just take my soul out from under the Bedclothes and put my soul down by the side of the bed for my soul to pray while I sleep. I gotta do it. I gotta bend. I gotta speak. There's no way that Paul is saying, I'm like a puppet and sin is pulling the strings. Paul says, I did it. I, the great ego, there right through this passage I am the one actually doing what I hate doing third thing I want to say to you tonight is that Paul is not describing a life of unmitigated defeat it's not what he's doing here alright Paul is not telling us we're not to jump from this passage to the conclusion that the Christian life is a life of complete and permanent defeat he's not saying when he was confronted with one of the ten commandments before breakfast and then at coffee time in the morning another commandment and then another commandment at lunch time and then in his afternoon tea break another commandment and then tea time another one and in the evening another one and going to bed another one and he broke the lot and he did it every day and every week, year and year out, Paul oh, doesn't say that. And isn't the impression that you've gained from reading the letters of Paul? There's something grand about them. I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. He' learned it. He'd gone to the Lord, and he'd said, "Teach me contentment now, and help me in whatever comes into my life. Teach me about being contented." He learned not to be covetous. He learned to be glad of what he had and not envious and grasping what other people had. We love that about him. He says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. So he was given energy every day. For whatever God asked him to do, God gave him strength to do it. He told the Thessalonians an extraordinary word. He said, you are my witnesses. And so is God. So you know, but God knows too. He calls God to bear witness with their witness. And he says, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you. God's my witness. You are my witness too. How holy, righteous, and blameless we were. So Paul I'm not presenting to you a man who is in a state of permanent despair. Uh, Paul is not the man in the iron cage. He didn't do things that he longed for and he did things he hated and he hated himself for doing them. He was a pastor who could exhort other people you follow my example now as I follow the Lord's example you do what What I do day by day, rejoice in the Lord always. I do. And you must do it too. He was a happy Christian. So I'm saying to you, you must never absolutize Romans chapter 7 and say, well, here we learn that the failures of the Christian are the Christian's paramount features. They're not. They are one essential feature of the multi-perspectival, comprehensive view of how Christians live and what Christians do. And you've got to find a place in your theological framework for Romans 7. It's got to be there pastorally you pastor your own heart why are you cast down O my soul why are you disquieted within me hope in God you preach the gospel to yourself you preach Romans 7 to yourself it's a balm, it's a comfort it's an explanation if you ignore it and you say well I've left it behind and I'm living now only in Romans 8 well you're going to be shocked you're going to be disillusioned and I'm not saying that that will be in 2017 or 2020 But tonight, and this week, Romans 7 is followed by Romans 8, and we live in both those chapters. What we see here, and what is so challenging, is how Paul takes full responsibility for his actions. And that's the great thing about Romans 7. When he lived in a blameless way, he did so more truly and more deeply than any of us because he knew that he was surviving he wasn't drowning, he was waving he was being kept by a power outside of himself a grace that was coming to God to enable him and it worked in his heart and and in his life I am what I am by the grace of God he said he knew that he was not what once he had been a cruel self-righteous torturer and persecutor he wasn't like that any longer and he wasn't what he one day would be when he saw the king in all his glory in Emmanuel's land he'd be like that king forever and ever and he knew that day by day now strength would be given to him and forgiveness would be given And though the the Christian falls seven times, seven times God raises us up. He speaks of his remorse and his regret that he he doesn't live as he should live. Oh, wretched man that I am, he says. And that's a gift of God. God has given him a repentant heart. He's all to wear when he's been behaving shabbily when he's been behaving shamefully. He says, what am I doing? What am I, a Christian, a preacher, a pastor, an evangelist? What am I doing living like this? You understand that in these last verses of Romans 7, he's not writing a script, a litany for you to quote that gets guilt off your back. Romans seven uh, uh, and its conclusion is not like uh, saying three Hail Marys and uh, uh, four Paternosters. It's, it's not like that at all. You can't pick it up and say, um, "What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue, rescue me from the body of this death?" I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. They're not a penance. He was not condoning his behavior in this chapter. There are great words, five great words, monosyllabic words in verse 15. What I hate, I do. That's a great challenge. Doesn't that search you? That when you sin, you hate it. Do you? Is that the inner witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart? That you hate your sin? That is high godliness. That is the challenge of Romans chapter 7. That's why, oh, we want to cling to it. We don't want to say, oh, I live in Romans 8. Oh, I thank God for Romans 7. And how humbling and inspiring it is. He's expressing the frustration and the bewilderment of a Christian who loves a God who sent his son to to die for him. Who didn't spare him from... Golgotha's agony and bloody sweat and the anathema and the, the pain and the, the anguish and that he fails then to say what Isaac Watts says love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all and he wasn't giving God his all he wasn't loving his neighbours himself He wasn't loving God with all his being. Paul was saying, these falls are my actions. They're my words. They're my desires. They're my imaginations. They're all mine. And if you could see what more was in my heart, you'd spit in my face. I'm not going to tell you a word about those things. I just want you to know how deeply ashamed of them I am. I hate my sin. You understand the manliness of uh, Romans 7. You know, the solemnity and how oh, he's not in a like a weak voice saying, uh, I wish I could live a better life. Uh, it's really hard to be a Christian, isn't it? Uh, we struggle on and we do our best and uh, God can't expect any more from us. And that, that is not the tone of voice. That is not the spirit of Romans 7. There is nothing remotely like that spirit in Romans 7 or anywhere in the Bible. That's not Christianity. Our saving faith in Jesus Christ doesn't know anything about vague resolutions, about turning over a new leaf and nostalgic longings for impossible improvements. Paul says, You present your body as a living sacrifice to God. Paul says, don't be conformed to your buddies, to the in-group, to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put to death the power of the flesh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be filled in every part of you with the Holy Spirit There was a determination to to be a a righteous disciple of Jesus Christ. He said, this one thing I do. Well then, let me close by saying some things about the psychology of the Christian life. Through the self-consciousness of uh, the Apostle Paul, the, the model Christian, The archetypal Christian, as I call him. And you've got to get that right. Because if you fall here, then you will fall repeatedly. And you'll go through one of those periods that the psalmist went through at a time of backsliding in his life when he said, iniquities against me prevail from day to day. I want you to be delivered from that. So, there are four basic characteristics of the Christian in Romans 7, four great lessons. The first is the Christian has one will. That's the first thing. That's just absolutely simple and absolutely foundational. Christian doesn't have uh, two hearts, a heart of stone and a heart of flesh. Just has one new heart. He doesn't have two wills, one choosing devilish devices and worldly pleasures and fleshly lusts and the other choosing whatsoever things are true and noble and Pure and lovely and admirable there's no such dualism there are not two wills in in your life you understand Mr. Goodwill is fighting Mr. Badwill that's not the case at all in our lives Christians have one indwelling God one new heart, one steadfast high intent to glorify God and enjoy him and yet every Christian is tempted by remaining sin and the fiery darts that will defy God's will and tell us, listen, listen to the sweet voice that says, the fruit is not forbidden and you can be like God if you take it. We're so tempted to give in to the precious of the world and go along with the suggestions of indwelling sin and so it's a battle. Okay. Welcome to the fight. Welcome to the holy war. If you should become a Christian tonight, and I hope every one of you will become a Christian who's not a Christian, then welcome to the war. It's going to be a battle. You've got to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And every Christian then will say, "Ah, I wish I fought better. I wish I had total victory. The enemy has learned to live, to fight another day. He'll come back when you've overcome him and he'll attack you in another way in another place and we've got to learn to fight back one will secondly the Christian is capable of doing real good in spite of our falls there in the New Testament we're given just glorious numerous examples of Christians who did real good Christians who lived in Roman 7 do real good Mary Magdalene she anointed the head of Jesus with costly perfume she dried with her own hair Her his tear soaked feet she loved the saviour much because she'd been forgiven much in Joppa there was a woman and her name was Tabitha or, or Dorcas we told she was always doing good and helping the poor we're told of another follower of Jesus Christ and this is what he said about that person. That she did what she could. That's a great statement. It's on Ernie Riesinger's gravestone. Again, we are told of another follower of the Lord Jesus. And uh, his name was Onesiphorus and he searched all the prisons in Rome to find out where Paul was. One prison asked, Went through all the complicated Roman legislation and paraphernalia and then finally in one prison he found Paul and he refreshed him, we're told. The prisons in Philippi, they got together and they got a sum of money and they conveyed the money to the prison in Rome to buy creature comforts for Paul or to pay his um, legal costs there was a centurion and he built a a place of worship for Jehovah there was a Samaritan and he stopped when he saw a man in need he thought I might be able to do something and he poured oil into his wounds and he washed him and put him on his donkey and took him to an inn and paid the innkeeper to look after him there was a man called Zacchaeus who before his conversion was grafting and stealing and he said I'll pay back four times the amount I've stolen from anyone I've stolen from the prodigal father's son ran to him and held him and kissed him and wept over him and gave him the full rights of sonship again they were men and women of like passions as ourselves and they did nothing perfectly None of us do anything perfectly, but that doesn't mean we don't do anything. We're able to do much that is good and kind and loving. And Paul in this chapter is so conscious to tell us how he admires the spirituality of the law. The law is good, he says. The law demands... Perfect obedience, not give him 85%. He wanted to do everything with all his might to the glory of God. And Because he couldn't do everything perfectly, he didn't say, well, it's not worth my trying. Ah, it's worth trying. It is worth trying. It's better to do something badly than not to do anything at all. It's worth stammering and making a mess of it. Having the Father die on the cross in your praying and in your witnessing instead of Jesus and making big clumsy errors. Oh, it's. God will accept that. God knows what your heart is saying. Do something for God. Something for thee, something small, something loving. Do it for Him. You can do something for God. You who live in Romans 7 like I do. Thirdly, the Christian doesn't make excuses for his sins. He's not describing in this chapter then uh, the heartache of a person who doesn't know God. You know, it's all around us. Aberystwyth is full of despairing people. They consider their lives to be absolute failures, they're virtually suicidal. They're turning to drink and any narcotics and anything that they can get to deliver them from how down they are. They're not like Paul. They would never say, the law of God. Ah, the law of God is holy and righteous and good. They'd never say, who can deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. So you may not take... Romans 7, and apply it to the guy walking in the street outside. You can't do that. This is our chapter. This is our teaching. This is for us, for Christians who gather in the name of Jesus Christ. This is instructing us about the nature of Christian discipleship. It's about our pilgrimage. What characterizes it? Paul is not describing here in this chapter the defeated, carnal Christian. He's not doing that. Someone who hasn't had the second blessing. Someone who has taken Christ as Savior, but he hasn't yet taken him as Lord. That's not Romans chapter 7. Paul had known Christ for 20 years when he wrote this chapter. And he'd been growing in grace and growing in the knowledge of Jesus. And he's opening his heart to us and he's saying, This is what mature Christianity is all about. Sin is strong. It's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Our hearts are so shallow. The closer you get to God, the more you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then the greater the degree of holiness you have attained... Then you are most conscious of your failures. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the really happy people. Blessed are they that mourn. And the fourth thing then, the fourth lesson that we learn about the character of the Christian, the psychology of the Christian is the Christian actually detests sin. He hates sin only a born again Christian hates sin you understand that lots of moral um, educated people live in this uh, university town and they disapprove of Hitler and they disapprove of racism and ISIS and homophobia and uh, narrow mindedness and things like that but sin they don't acknowledge the existence of sin and don't hate it and the Christian he prays deliver me from secret sins the Christian sees his sins as done against God when Jacob was tempted by Potiphar's wife he said how can I do this great wickedness and and sin and sin against God he said and answer god for my life well now is that is this what you know about yourself and if you don't know these things about your own heart and your own life isn't this why there is failure and weakness in your life that you're not living as you should be living because you haven't come to an understanding of how god looks at you and He's the wonderful counselor and he's brought you here tonight to counsel you. To instruct you about the consequences of remaining sin in our lives. Has the Holy Spirit shown you these things? What I want to do, I don't do. What I hate, I do. Who is this stranger, this horrible person? who does these things I do things against my will things to which as a Christian I I don't give my consent I've talked to you tonight about the conflict of the Christian man the conflict of a man who knows the will of God and loves the will of God and longs to do the will of God but he fails to do it he finds that because of his flesh he can't do what he wants to do and you know that because the Bible teaches it but you know it because you have an inward witness an inward witness is telling you tonight that what I've said to you is true that it fits into your own experience as a a Christian for many years or just for a few years you long to do what's good you hate what's evil And when you sin, you sin against an impetus to do good. We sin against our minds. We sin against the law of God written on our hearts. We sin against the whole tenor of our lives as believers. It was a continued civil war going on. It was as if there were two voices. And one was calling him to go one way and another to go another way. I want to do good and evil is present with me. That's the Christian situation. We say, I will, and then we don't. We say, I won't, and then we do. We make a promise, we set a goal, and we don't keep it. We say, I'll never do it again, and we do it again. We get on our knees and we say, Father, just help me, and then we're on our knees Asking for help the next day. That's the Christian experience. And if you say to me, it's not your experience, I don't believe you. If you you say to me, I don't have this conflict with remaining sin and grief that I fall into sin, I, I, I don't have that. I don't believe you. You've got an inadequate understanding of what the will of God is for your life? You're under command to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Is that how you're treating your neighbor? You're under a golden rule that says that you want to do to others exactly as you would have them do to you. Is that is that how you live? You know, fall after fall after fall. Join the club. Join the body of Christ. Be in it. This chapter is putting a bomb under the whole idea that salvation hangs on us, on our righteous lives, on our good works, that I do my best and God takes me to heaven. It is not like that. It never has been like that and it never will be. Salvation hangs on one man who never said, I don't understand what I do. never said the evil that I would not that I do ah he never said that pure and holy Jesus separate from sinners Jesus he never did that and that makes us cry out tonight hallelujah what a savior he can be a three dimensional loving suffering thirsty bleeding dying man he always did what his heavenly father wanted unlike me and unlike you and that righteousness is our only hope, that it covers our stains and sins, and the blood of the Lamb of God that died for us, that's our only hope. We'll never be, never be saved by our religion. All the time I'm trying to deliver men and women from religion, and to bring them into Jesus Christ, that their hope should be in Him, flee to Him, be found in Him, rest in Him, hide in Him, Make him your plea. Then you'll often feel like a wretched man. But you will not end by saying, oh, wretched man that I am. And you won't end by asking the question, who will deliver me from the body of this death? But you will end by giving the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, his deliverance. The vilest offender knows deliverance. You go to God as you are you put your trust in him now you do it tonight as the spirit of God has taken the word of God and as he's supplying it to you and you and you And you turn the word into prayer and you ask the God teach me what I am, show me myself and show me my saviour let's pray together our Heavenly Father, thank you for being the wonderful counselor that's taught us about ourselves and to understand ourselves and the tensions of the Christian life. Thank you for these things. We pray in your grace and mercy you'll help us then to run away from all our strivings and struggles and failures and make a huge bonfire of them and hide in Jesus only. That he's all our hope and all our anticipation. Hear us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.